Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. First off, I am very, very excited to be with you guys as we kick off this new series called God 101. It's all about encountering God in a variety of different ways. And the beautiful thing about this is that I will not be speaking through all four weeks of this series. So I'm very excited um, that somebody else will be speaking. The best thing in the world is when a priest can come sit back, relax, and enjoy somebody else's talk. Um, so, And I'm excited for you guys because you'll have a little bit of a break for me. So the hard thing about this discussion, particularly this one, is prayer isn't something you talk about. It's very challenging to talk about the subject of prayer because... How do you like put into words a relationship? Like how do you sort of speak about this for the next 30 or so minutes about cuz here's the beautiful thing. God loves each of us in a very very particular way. Individually, uniquely. Because there's only one you. Right? There's only one you one that comes with all of your personalities, all of your gifts, all the things that God fashioned you to be. And your God's love for you is so unique in that way. And what makes God so eager to hear your voice is you are the only one that can pray and have a relationship with God in the way that you do. Does that make sense? Like he loves you for your uniqueness and your uniqueness makes you love him. Is that too philosophical? Like, he loves us in a very unique way because we are the only, you are the only you. And because you are the only you, you can only worship him the way that you do. And that's such a beautiful, profound thing. Like, imagine, sometimes we like to talk about, like, the general love of God as though, like, of course, God loves everyone. But his unique love for you is so beautiful and so individual because only you can speak to him in the way that you do. And when you become a parent, you sort of get a glimpse of that. Like your loving relationship with your kid is very beautiful and unique to that particular kid. And it's not any more or less than the next kid. It's just different. And it's, such, so it's, it's just a different form of love or a different manifestation of love. So I think the, the only way that I can talk about prayer is as a loving relationship. As a loving relationship between two people that really, really desire to be with one another. And I think before we can even have a conversation about prayer, we have to understand how much God longs to hear your voice. Like he longs to hear your voice. And the beauty of that voice is that, again, it is so unique. Like there's no bird that can chirp the way as the next bird can chirp. There's no flower that is exactly identical to the next flower. And all those things, by being who they are called to be, showcase the beauty of the gardener or the one who put them there. So prayer is this coming into 
this beautiful relationship and embracing this beautiful relationship for what it is and for who God is. So I just wanted to start with that caveat. And I read this really beautiful quote from this book called um, The Inner Kingdom by Metropolitan Callistus Ware. It's, he, if anyone has heard of him, he writes, he's written a number of Orthodox books. Um, Uh, the Orthodox Way, The Orthodox Church, The Jesus Prayer, The Inner Kingdom. He's got a ton of books. I highly recommend his books. Um, they're beautiful, they're profound, and they have so much depth to them. But he st- I read this, qu- this, this quote from him that says, To stand before God, that implies that worship is an encounter, a meeting between persons. I want to pause at that for a second. Prayer is coming face-to-face with your beloved, face-to-face with a being, not a theoretical sort of figure in the sky. You're coming face-to-face with the being, with your beloved, and it's an encounter. And many of us run away from that encounter. We run away from that encounter because I think it's very hard to pray and it's very hard for, him to, for us to come face to face with God because what sometimes happens is we get a clearer revelation of who we are when we stand before God. So let me give you an example. Have you ever been around somebody that was very, very, very holy? Anyone ever been around somebody very holy? What words come to mind? when you talk about that experience? Throw out some adjectives. Give me like one word answers. Peace, okay. Humble, humility, you you get a sense of yourself, right? What else, give me other words. Joyful. Simple, okay. wow, I'm not so not there. I think that's a really key one. Like sometimes when you come face to face with holiness, you have this like recognition of self and you're like, yeah, I'm so not there. I'm not where I need to be. I'm not where I should be. I'm not where. And that's sometimes what makes us avoid prayer is there's this part of us that thinks that we're coming before God as though he is a judge and as though he's trying to reveal to us some sort of brokenness about ourselves and he's just going to leave us there in that brokenness. But the reality is, is that it's an encounter. It's a coming face to face with a physician, with beloved, with someone who really desperately cares for you. And when you come face to face with that understanding of God, it makes you less fearful to approach him and it makes you more enthusiastic to approach him. It's a meeting between persons. The purpose of worship is not to arouse emotions and to produce appropriate moral attitudes, but to enter into a direct personal relationship with God, the Holy Trinity, as a friend talking with his friend. As a friend talking with his friend. Like there's that uniqueness, there's that specialness, and there is that particularity for that relationship. So I just wanted to set that as the framework of our conversation today, is that this is a relationship, prayer is a relationship, it's a conversation between persons, between me as a person, between God as a person, or as persons. And 
Love is the catalyst for it. Does that make sense? Love is the catalyst for prayer. And when one doesn't really understand the love of God, which all of us are growing in an understanding, every single one of us, it makes it harder for us to come to Him in prayer. And you've heard me say this a thousand times before, but if you approach God as a slave, you're afraid of Him. If you approach God as a servant, you just want something out of Him. If you approach Him as a son or a daughter, you just long to be with Him. And I think those that sort of approach to prayer really is the catalyst for how you go about praying. So what I thought we could do today is maybe we could take one of the Psalms and we could sort of break down how a Psalm is formulated and what we learn from those, this particular Psalm um, in terms of approach to prayer. And the theme of the year is all about stillness. And we love to say, be still and know that I am God. But we don't really know the context of where that verse comes from, right? We just kind of pull random verses out and we say, oh, this is such a beautiful verse. Be still. Like somebody's going through a hard time. You say, be still and know that I am God. But let's look at how that person got to say that. Like, let's get to how to be still. Let's not just tell people to be still. Like, I'll, I'll never forget this. When I was asked to priesthood, people would say to me, you'll have peace. I'm like, I don't have peace. You, you will have peace. I, I don't have peace. Well, then, then you just need to pray and you'll have more peace. And what I came to realize is that peace is not a moment. It's not like tell somebody to have peace and they're going to have peace. Peace is a process. You, ha you, you acquire peace. It, it's something in relationship that happens, right? Like when you're about to do something very major in your life, you don't have peace as you're about to go into it. Like it's a systematic process. And maybe for some people, they just snap their fingers and they acquire peace. For me, it's very much a journey. And I think that's the same in terms of how we learn to be still, how we learn to encounter God in prayer. So let's take Psalm 46. That's where the famous be still and know that I am God comes in from. So let's take these first three verses and let's sort of break them down together. It starts by saying, first of all, this is not a psalm of David. Um, this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Um, so when you read this psalm, there's psalms that were compiled by David and there's psalms that are written by alternative authors. Um, but I think this is a really beautiful psalm in terms of its structure and in terms of what we can sort of take away, away for, in terms of what we can take from it for our own personal lives. So who wants to read these first three verses? Or should I just... Just for the recording, because... Okay. Um, <clears throat> even though the earth be removed... And thou and the mountain be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Salah. Okay. So what do you what do you take away from these first three verses? Don't look at the answer on the bottom, but I want you to just this is obviously my answer that I sort of take out of, but I want to kind of get a gauge of what you guys think. Like Salah means pause. Or break so this psalm is broken down into like little stanzas and then a break in between each stanza so God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore we will not fear even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea though its waters roar and be troubled though the mountains shake with its swelling 
What do you walk away with from these first three verses? Go ahead, Monica. To have peace knowing that, to have peace knowing that God is with you. Okay. So, like, if, if the impossible, like the mountains being carried into the sea, the waters roaring and troubled, you know, mountains shaking with its swelling, if any of those happen, like the impossibles to us or, you know, um, forces of nature, knowing that God is present, he's present and helping you while you're going through your troubles, that should give you peace. And okay. since we were just talking about peace, so that came to mind. Okay, very good. Any other thoughts? It's a reminder of like you're surrounded by chaos and yet remember the Lord is our refuge. He's our strength. He is a very present help in times of trouble. Yeah, yeah, there's chaos. There's chaos going on. And yet remember God is there. He is very present to be a, a refuge, a safe place to be your strength and through the chaos. Beautiful. God is very present in the midst of chaos. So where do you, what do you think you learn about from these first three verses about how this writer approaches prayer? Why does he start with this first verse? There's like this moment of acknowledgement of like the truth of who God is, right? Before I can talk about all my problems, I have to sort of acknowledge the truth about who God is, that God is my refuge and my strength, and he's very present when I'm in trouble. Because I think if you don't start with the truth, then it's very easy to just get into your problems without acknowledging that God is with you in those problems. So he starts off with sort of saying, Let me tell myself the truth of who God is. And then let me get into my problems. Like, let me tell you who you are. And that's why the church always will start, and I'll get into this later on. We always start every prayer with the prayer of thanksgiving. Whether it's a funeral, whether it's a wedding, whether it's a baptism, we start with the prayer of thanksgiving. Because we first have to acknowledge, and the word that we use in the prayer of thanksgiving is For he has covered us, helped us, guarded us, accepted us to himself, spared us, supported us, and brought us to this hour. Those words are very profound and beautiful. Like one day I was just sitting and I decided to like just pull those words out and then write them down and try to define them. And they're just very deep, rich words. So we start every prayer acknowledging who God is, right? And who he is and what his characteristics are. Because when one first acknowledges who God is, then all of a sudden my problems seem very small in the greatness of who God is. And I think it's very easy for all of us to just get caught up in our problems. Like, think about it, right? Like, if I, if I reflect on my most recent problems, did I start with acknowledging the greatness of God? Or did I just get into God with my problems? Hey, God, there's this person that's going through this hard time. There's this person that's not like, God, you are the healer, the redeemer, the one who binds those who are sick, the one who's able to raise those from the dead, the one who's able to give eyes to the blind. Like sometimes it requires you to like all of a sudden just dump the truth of who God is back to him because it's almost like a, a narrative for yourself, right? 
And then all of a sudden, now God, after I've told you the truth of who you are, which you, you don't really need me to tell you, it's more for me, like, then I can get into my problems. And I think you learn a little bit about the posture of prayer from how this psalm is sort of created. And you sort of learn about how cool our church is in terms of how it structured its prayer from, like, when you take our structured prayers and then you compare it to how some of the psalms were structured, you sort of see, like, there is a little bit of, like, a masterpiece in terms of how the Holy Spirit entire inspired the church to create the way we pray. Let's go to the next part. So the author reminds himself of the true nature of God. So let's go to Psalm, the, the second section of it. Who wants to read? Not all at once, guys. I will read for the, okay, great. Somebody else, Katrina or George, whoever. There's a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. What are your walkaways here? I'm going to go back so you guys can't see that. Or I wish I could like, cover it somehow. I forgot to do my animation to make it come up short on time. What do, you, what do you walk away from this? Don't cheat. Just like take what you take out of it. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. You got to read that, read it with this emotion sometime or this. The holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Salah, pause. Isn't it a cool psalm so far even? Like just taking this, like, it's pretty beautiful. I mean, I feel like the river of grace. What? The river of grace almost. Okay. Like there's... His grace is moving and coming down, and his streaming that is just like it's like it just the flow of, of just of graces that make glad the city of God. Right? Okay, I like that, Teresa. I like that very much. Pull out verses, words that stand out from this. Just say random words, guys. Just pull them out. Streams, okay. Give me other words that stick out from this. These, sorry, melted, okay. Midst, okay. Tabernacle. Refuge. What does tabernacle represent? The presence of God, or like the holy place. Right? The city of God stands out. What else stands out? Sorry? Break of dawn, just at the break of dawn. As I read this this morning, I started to think to myself, like, this is like the presence of God or the church. Like, God, first let me start by telling you who you are. Let me tell you a little bit about my problems. Then let me be reminded of what your presence, again, sort of does in the midst of 
all the stuff that I'm going through. That your presence is like a river which makes glad the city of God. Your presence, the tabernacle of the Most High, you are in the midst of this tabernacle. Is that tabernacle me? Like, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Is that tabernacle this building, the altar? Is that tabernacle? I read a few commentaries on it. There's a lot of different perspectives on Psalms. But the beauty about the Psalms is that you can take them and you can personalize them. There's no theology that's really created from the Psalms. You can sort of like take them and apply them to how you sort of read them and try to live them out. God is in her midst and she shall not be moved. Just God shall help her just at the break of dawn. Tell me why. Tell me why the gender sticks out. I don't have like an answer for you, but I, I mean. Because when, when I think of the Psalms, they're either gender neutral or more of the masculine. Like, um, But reading it, I'm like, why her? Like God is in the midst, midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her mm. just at the break of dawn. And then there's another shift again where it's back to kind of plurality us our why yeah sorry I, it's more of a question i don't know the answer yeah. but that just kind of stuck out to me yeah good Teresa. you have thoughts yeah, I think I so i think it has to do with the idea of giving and receiving that god is he because he is the giver of of life of, of everything he is the giver and the church is a she because she is the receiver right um, just like, you know, men and women, givers and receivers, right? And so the idea is that it is God who is going to be giving the help and the assistant, and it is those who are receiving why it's, I would say, properly, properly a she, or mm -hmm. that, I would say that would be the concept. That's a, that's a nice perspective. That's a nice perspective. Oh, yeah. I love that verse. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. You know when you're like in a moment of of like it seems like you've hit your rock bottom and then all of a sudden there's that little gl glimmer of light that kind of breaks through just <laughs> at the nick of time. Like I've had so many moments in my life where you're like this is a hopeless situation and then all of a sudden just at the break of dawn God like enters in and provides like hope in the midst of it. I think sometimes, to be honest with you, God comes through right at the break of dawn. Not because he's like aloof and unaware and lollygagging. It's like, ha, 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 I'm like just waiting to see. It's more of like there is a process. Like what God is doing in you while you are waiting is more important than what you are waiting for. Like what is happening in you in the process of you waiting for God to come through in that situation or problem is not as important as what he's doing in you as you're waiting. The person that is being cultivated, the growth that's happening in you, the strength that you are acquiring, the trust in him that you are sort of cultivating. Matt, you want to jump in? Give a, give a mic, Matt, so you can... 
So I think we, we see the break of dawn and we think of it as like a, a random very last moment, but the break of dawn is not random. The break of dawn is, is scheduled every mm -hmm. time. It's the perfect time, mm -hmm. right? And so you're meant to go through from dusk till dawn. You're meant to, and the break of dawn is the perfect time that the light begins to come up again, right? Where his light begins to be revealed. And so it's not like a nick of time, like in our minds, it's like, the perfect time in which light is meant to be revealed. And so yeah. it helps us understand our dusk better because every dusk is followed by the dawn, by the break of dawn, right? And so if you know you're in the dusk, you know without fail the sun will rise. And if you know without fail, it's at the perfect time in which it's meant. It's clockwork. It's literally, you can go to Google, it's clockwork. Like it's, yeah. not, it's not a random thing. And so it's, again, it's a certainty of... And also just on the she, her, it's very similar to what it's relationship, right? And so if it's us or the church, it is very much of if he's the he, where the she, where the her, right? That that he's working. So just two notes. Thank you. It feels like us for us. It feels like the nick of time, right? But for Matt, as Matt was saying, it's God is very much in control. Um, sometimes it's in that right at the break of dawn, that it sort of feels like God comes in and he enters into the situation and brings significant healing. So the author reminds himself of the presence of God. And I, I as a priest, I personally feel like this, these three verses apply like to me very much, right? Like there are times in which, and it applies to all of us, there are times in which your circumstances are so heavy and the only thing that you can do is come right before the presence of the Lord in the Eucharist. And you can stand before him and you could say, Lord, here's all the stuff. Here's all the messiness. Here's all the problems that are going on. And you're in my midst. And your holy place is what makes me glad. The stream of life that comes from you is what allows me to know when the nations are raging, when the kingdoms are moving, when all the situations are happening around me, that you are still God and you are still my refuge. And I think for many of us, the, we approach the Eucharist or the liturgical prayers in the church as just obligation rather than celebration. Something that we do rather just by habit rather than there is like an urgency that comes from this encounter. So I think the author reminds himself of the presence of God which heals and protects. And I think as you keep going through the remainder of the psalm, you'll see a few things that will manifest. Who wants to read the next few verses? Sorry, we've been, we've, we're only on slide five. So uh, we're going to try to move this along a little bit faster. So come be, I like the, the dynamic nature of this conversation, though. So come behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in, in the earth. He makes wars to cease. He makes wars cease the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. And cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. How do you think the person got to stillness? Based on the first eight verses. Or, not, or ten verses. Like, do you see a flow here? Sorry. I hate the microphone. Uh, it's like God's conquered all of these 
all of the the issues, all of the stresses, all the trials again and again and again and again and again. And it's like, be still. Yeah. Like you're in chaos, but you've seen it again and time and time again. Be still. Yeah. Know that I am God. Know that I am here. So what is the what is the author of this psalm doing? To get to the point of be still and know that I am God. Remembering who God is. Like I sort of summarize it into these four points. Prayer allowed him to come face to face with his friend and his beloved. Prayer reminded him of the true nature of God. Prayer reminded him of God's presence in challenging times. And prayer reminded him of how God makes the impossible possible. So I think when you read that and you see what this person took, what this person was able to articulate in his prayer, is very much all about the character of God. And that's why it's very, very, very important to know the true nature of who God is. That's why when people say theology is not important, I'm like, you can only pray if you really are, a tr like, if you understand true theology. Like, if you only understand part of the nature, like, we're only grasping for God. We can't really understand God in totality, but when one really understands the character of God, you don't even need to really know like that much theology, but at least the character and the nature of who God is, it really shapes how you pray. So if you approach God as afraid, like that slave sort of perspective, you're very much in the posture of fear, and fear doesn't allow you to trust the person that you are praying to. Right, So if I'm in this posture of cowering, like, Lord, I'm really, really scared of you, and Lord, don't smite me because I did this thing, then that fear translates in how I live life, right? Like, a person will come to me and have done a bunch of really messed up things, and they'll say, Abuna, I'm about to go, hypothetically, into the military. Can you pray for me? Because I don't want to die with these particular sins. And you're like, okay. I mean, I'm happy to pray for you, but I think your posture is you're scared that you're going to die, and that's why you're coming back to God, which is fear is like a good entry point at times, right? But is it going to keep you in that relationship? I don't think fear is, is going to be the catalyst that will keep this person coming back to God. So if one, the fear of God is the beginning of understanding, and then perfect love casts out what? All fear. So eventually, when you're a child in your relationship with your parents, you're afraid of, like your parents, you're afraid to be disciplined. But over time, you start to understand what it means to have a friendship with your parents. And then the fear turns into, I'm afraid to hurt. I'm afraid to wound the relationship. I'm afraid to there, for there to be that relationship that's complicated. And I know oftentimes when we have messy relationships with our earthly parents, it makes it complicated with our relationships with our, with our heavenly parent. Um, so I don't want to make that the standard, but I want it to be just kind of something about that we think about in terms of how we formulate our prayers. Our, our prayers are formulated by the posture in which we sort of view God. So I, the posture that I, I, I approach God is as a beggar, right? Like that's the posture that I often will approach God as. I, I'm a beggar, and I know he's a really, really generous, like he's Big Daddy Warbucks, and I'm the orphan Annie, you know? Like that's my posture with God. Because I see that I'm in desperate need and that he is capable of giving me everything that I need to get through this day. And everybody's posture is shaped by 
a pre-existing experience with God. So just be watchful about how you approach God. Like think about the prayers that you've had because you can take some of these psalms and you can find psalms that are very repentant and you can find psalms that are very much in anguish and in, in a lot of pain. Like we talked about uh, a psalm recently. Um, in where, where are you, God, in the midst of my sadness? It was one of the talks that we gave off the cuff a few, few months back. Um, but there is a lot of... Your posture is very important in how you pray. So just take, take note of that in terms of like uh, something that you do when you are coming to God in prayer. I want to share a quick story. Have any of you ever heard of uh, Bishop Samuel? Bishop Samuel was the general bishop of uh, public ecumenical and social services. He passed away in 1981, and he was... Um, um, executed people they say he was executed by the egyptian government um, and he's a quite a beautiful historical figure in the history of the church and what he would do pastorally he's the one who like sort of pushed the the church in the diaspora to start and he would write letters to those who came to america like like literally penned letters to those who were like the pioneers of starting the church in america and they would say, oh, you know, we're really busy with our work, trying to establish ourselves, trying to get things going. And one of the little sections of one of the letters that he wrote, was, I found really beautiful. It says, prepare yourself to enjoy, he's talking about prayer, opportunities whenever you're able to. Be alone with yourself. And whenever you feel the ignition of the heart moving you to prayer and sitting, the sitting between his hands, do not postpone these moments. They are blanks of light that ignite in your heart. Whenever you have an opportunity, respond to them quickly. Then you will taste the meaning of, the, of joy in the bosom of the beloved Jesus. I love this like little thing that he pens to this random doctor in New Jersey. He basically tells him, I know you're working. I know you're busy. I know that things are crazy. But find any time the moment or the idea that you, Christ pops into your heart, just take those opportunities to just pray and to be aware of. And that leads us very clearly into the different types of prayers that we have that help us sort of navigate relationship with God. So I want to start with what we all very clearly know, which is liturgical prayer. And a lot of people will ask when they come to our church, why the candles? Why the incense? Why the symbols? Why all this stuff? Is all this necessary? No, it's not necessary. Like, if you were in a war-stricken country and you didn't have the candles and you didn't have all these different things, could you still offer liturgical prayer without those things? Absolutely. I love what Father Alexander Schmemann says. He says, beauty is never necessary functional or useful and when expecting someone whom we love we put a beautiful tablecloth on the table we decorate it with candles and flowers we do all of this not out of necessity but out of love so all that we do is to prepare ourselves like when you see the way the church does everything why we prostrate why we do the signs of the cross why we we attempt to make a verbal explanation of all these different things like we can theologize it and we can sort of give a very spiritual meaning but the real real posture of it 
is it's a preparation for our beautiful bridegroom that we want to make the most beautiful celebration for us to dine with him. And the most beautiful thing about this is that he prepares it actually for us. Like it's the whole thing is this very reciprocal, loving relationship. So when you come into our church and you see the smoke and you see the candles and you see the lights and you see the hymns and you see all these different things, we are welcoming the presence of our bridegroom. We are preparing the table. We are making sure that the whole place is aware that our beloved is here. Like, you know, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, what the people did? They ripped their shirt jackets off. They put it on the floor. They ripped palm trees off the tree. They knew the entrance of Christ was coming into the city, and they did everything in their power to prepare for him. All of these things that the church has put into place, they, of course, have symbolic biblical meaning. But are they necessary? Like, by, like by sheer in each of those things themselves? No, they all point us and they all prepare us to be in deeper loving relationship with him. So the whole value of symbol in worship is that it expresses something which cannot be said in words, right? Like you see smoke ascending into the heavens, we say it's our prayers ascending. But there's something that somebody sees that all of a sudden they don't put into the words, it just brings them to worship. When you see, when you hear hymns and certain tunes that are happening in the church, whether they're somber or whether they're joyful, you can explain it with words why we are singing this hymn in this way, but all one needs to do is close their eyes and the natural posture that that hymn brings a person into happens. Does that make sense? Like, you see where I'm going with this for a second? Like, all of this is... Uh, a byproduct of love. All of this is a byproduct of what the church is trying to do in order to prepare the place for our heavenly bridegroom, our beautiful, beloved Redeemer and Savior who comes and meets with us on a regular basis. So we have liturgical prayer, and I'm only, you're going to get encountering God in liturgy, so I'm going to take a, put that just to the side for a second. But then you have this idea in the church called unceasing prayer. And this one is a heavy one for me because I think it's St. Gregory of Nazianzus says, remember God more often than you breathe, which is a very intense quote because you're like, what does that even mean? How can you remember God more than you actually breathe? And it makes you scratch your head and it makes you sort of wonder to yourself. But I'm going to share a few things that I think sort of resonate. Prayer and worship is not something that is an activity that you do at a certain moment. Prayer is the entirety of our existence. Everything that we do is prayer. And what do I mean by that? Alexander Schmemann says something. He says, a Christian is one, wherever he looks, finds Christ and rejoices in him. So let me paint you a picture of this. So you're walking, you're taking a hike, all right? And you see a beautiful tree. That beautiful tree is, point, is put there by God, as the great artist, to, for you to look and to behold and say, wow, Lord, you are a fantastic architect. That's a prayer. You walk, and all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're camping somewhere, and you look at the stars, and you see them shining, and you say, wow, Lord, how magnificent. Like King David must have been looking at the stars one night, and he said, when I look at the stars... 
and the moon and the sky. What is man that you are mindful of him? He sees all of the beauty that God has sort of painted. All of these are little love letters that God has sort of painted for you. And as he writes these little love letters, he then invites you into this really beautiful thing where you get to be a creator with him. Everything that you create is also a love letter back to him. So when a person invents something, you're pointing back to the architect who made you. When you are living the best version of who God created you to be, when you are the best engineer, when you are the best doctor, when you are the best this, best that, you are pointing back to the artist who made you, and that in itself is a prayer. You following me, or did I confuse you? Okay. So I'll give you an, I'll give you an example of that. So there is this story of St. Anthony the Great, which which I'll actually jump right into. St. Anthony the Great is praying one day. This is written in the story of Desert Fathers. And it's revealed by the angels that in the city, this is St. Anthony the Great, the one who fought demons, the ones who was ascetic, the father of monasticism. The, like I just gave a talk to him a few weeks ago. If you like, St. Anthony is fantastic. He's amazing. And he says, in the city, there is one like you. What? I'm literally living in a cave for 20 years. I'm literally having fistfights with demons. I am literally have thousands of people coming to me and listening to me. I'm literally the one who walked with St. Athanasius and helped him write on the incarnation. Like, what? Who's like me? A doctor, my profession, who gives to those in need whatever he can spare. And throughout the whole, the whole day, he sings the thrice holy hymn with the angels. Holy God, holy mighty, holy mortal, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Like, he's not saying that it's, you have to, the angels are revealing to him that by what this man was doing, by being an honest physician, by remembering God, by using the gifts and talents that God had given him, he is worshiping the Lord. So God is painting the world around us as a love letter to you. So when you look at the stars, when you look at the moon, when you look at the sun, when you look at flowers, that's God reminding you of him. And everything that you do when you create, when you do your work to the best of your, your ability, you are pointing back to him. And that's why people say, well, what the heck is the point of my nine to five? If you do your nine to five faithfully, if you serve God with all your heart, then you become a light in the midst of your workplace. You point back to him by being the best version and using your gifts and talents, the greatest capacity that you have, that points back to the one who fashioned you. So that's your love letter back to him. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When I do what God created me to do fully and wholly, it becomes holy. You understand what I mean by that? It's not this like theoretical thing that we're doing. It becomes something that is the whole of my existence becomes worship towards the Lord. It's not just something that priests do. Like people say, oh, priests do holy work. You do holy work too if you do it pointing back to him. So remember God as often as you can breathe. Remember God as often as you can 
This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.